0: The Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode.
1: G'day and welcome to episode 71 of AFF On Air. It's the 16th of October 2021 and the huge news yesterday was the announcement from the New South Wales Premier that vaccinated Australians will be allowed to leave the country and return without having to do any quarantine, just a negative COVID test from the 1st of November. There's a lot to digest here and to help me do this, I'll be joined very shortly by a travel agent and regular guest on this podcast, the ever-knowledgeable Alan Lamb. Also, coming up, how to leverage your airline status to get a status match with another airline. But first, let's begin with a roundup of the latest airline and frequent fly news from the past fortnight. And obviously, the big news this fortnight is that New South Wales will remove quarantine requirements for Australians and their immediate family members returning from overseas from the 1st of November, which is just over two weeks away now. People in New South Wales will also be allowed to leave, and I'll have lots more to say about this shortly when I bring in today's guest. The reopening of New South Wales and the removal of caps on flights into Sydney will obviously do a lot to ease the backlog of people trying to get back into Australia, but with the international arrival caps still in place until next month, a limited number of DFAT repatriation flights operated by Qantas have been continuing this month. One of the more notable repatriation flights was last week's Qantas service from Buenos Aires in Argentina to Darwin, which has been labelled the longest ever commercial Qantas flight. The flight took 17 hours and 26 minutes in flying time, and passengers had great views of Antarctica for around four hours during the flight due to the southerly flight path. This flight also set a record for Darwin Airport, which has become the first airport anywhere in the world to accept passenger flights from every inhabited continent non-stop in the same year. Who would have thought Darwin? The... Australian government has been criticised, however, for running the only repatriation flight. It's operated from South America all year out of Argentina, which has closed borders. And they also didn't give enough notice for Australians in other parts of South America to actually get to Buenos Aires, navigating those closed borders in order to make the flight. And so while most of the defat re- repatriation flights into Darwin have sold out within a few minutes, this flight left with around a hundred empty seats, since people physically couldn't enter Argentina from elsewhere in South America to take the flight. It's understood Buenos Aires was chosen as the departure point because the aircraft had to fly to Buenos Aires anyway to return the Argentinian rugby team back home after they played in Australia. With Qantas now resuming scheduled international services from the 1st of November earlier than planned, beginning with flights from Sydney to London and Sydney to Los Angeles from the 1st of November, it shortly won't have enough Boeing 787s to continue operating those defat repatriation flights though. So instead, next month, Singapore Airlines will operate two repatriation flights from Singapore to Darwin on behalf of DFAT. Seats will be available for sale from Monday for the two flights on the 2nd and the 8th of November. And connecting flights will be available from Europe, the United States and South Africa. Passengers on these flights will have to quarantine at Howard Springs for 14 days after arriving in the Northern Territory. Now, of course, New South Wales will have already opened up by then, but these flights are not designed for people travelling to New South Wales. They're designed for people who want to go to states and territories like the Northern Territory, Western Australia, South Australia, Tasmania or Queensland, which will not yet be open then. They'll still have arrival caps for inbound travel. And um, those states and territories are also not currently uh, allowing people in from New South Wales. Meanwhile, over the past few months, a, I guess you could almost say a black market, so to speak, has emerged of travel agents discreetly selling tickets into Australia via New Zealand with private jets, chartered private jets being used to get from New Zealand to Brisbane. There are currently no commercial flights available from New Zealand to Australia that will change next month, but for now there's nothing to stop somebody chartering a private jet from Auckland to Brisbane. And due to a loophole in Queensland's quarantine rules, passengers on small private jets are allowed to enter Queensland and go into two weeks of uh, hotel quarantine, which they have to pay for, but without being subject to the usual inbound arrival caps, which have been locking out Australians for over a year. These packages uh, of, you know, an economy class flight to Auckland and then a private jet to Brisbane typically start from around $13,000 per person. So they're definitely not for everyone. Uh, And the package includes um, the flights, any um, arrangement of any necessary approvals and the travel agents commission. Now It's certainly an unorthodox way to return to Australia, but for some desperate Aussies stranded overseas, it's been the only way that they've been able to get home over the past couple of months. No doubt, though, that this will no longer become worthwhile uh, for most people come November. Qantas and Virgin Australia have both added more new domestic routes as they prepare for domestic travel to ramp up again. Qantas is now selling direct flights from Darwin to both Cairns and Townsville, operated by Alliance Airlines E190s. Meanwhile, Virgin has just announced six new domestic routes that will operate over the summer. Virgin will shortly resume Sydney to Coffs Harbour Services, taking advantage of um, intra-New South Wales travel opening up from the 1st of November, as well as adding a new Melbourne to Coffs Harbour route. It will add three new routes from the Gold Coast, with flights to Cairns, Launceston and Hobart, and the seasonal Adelaide to Sunshine Coast route is also making a comeback. A new startup airline is planning to launch low cost flights to leisure and regional destinations around Australia from next year. Bonza, as the airline has been named, doesn't plan to compete directly with Qantas, Jetstar, Virgin, or Rex on flights with lots of business travellers and routes on the Golden Triangle. Flying a small fleet of new single class Boeing 737 MAX planes, Bonza also won't have any fancy lounges or a frequent flyer program. Instead, it's going to target holiday makers and everyday Australians, is what they're saying, with cheap flights on underserved routes outside of the major cities. It remains to be seen whether there is a sufficient gap in the Australian domestic market for another low-cost airline of this nature. Bonza's founders naturally believe there is. They claim that Australia is the only country out of the top 15 domestic aviation markets that currently does not have two low-cost carriers. And Bonza says it will seek to stimulate demand on niche routes that are not already being served by another airline, rather than trying to claim a piece of the existing pie. The startup is now seeking partnerships with regional airports across Australia. But some industry experts are not so sure this will work, especially when Bonza is going to be using aircraft that seat between 180 and 200 passengers – that's a lot of demand that they would need to create on regional routes that aren't currently being served. The Bonza team does at least have a decent amount of experience, though, so you never know. They could be onto something. They have financial backing from 777 Partners, which has also financed Flair Airlines in Canada and the Value Alliance. And the airline's CEO has worked at budget airlines like Virgin Blue, Cebu Pacific, and most recently as the managing director of Fly Aristan, which is a very successful new low-cost carrier based in Kazakhstan. German airline Lufthansa is removing complimentary snacks and spirits from economy and premium economy on its long-haul flights. Complimentary meals and drinks other than spirits will still be provided for free on Lufthansa long-haul flights, but the complimentary snacks served during the middle of long flights such as Frankfurt to Los Angeles will be scrapped, and additional food will be made available for sale instead. Lufthansa began charging for snacks and drinks on its short-haul flights already earlier this year. Lufthansa says the change is designed to achieve greater customer satisfaction by giving customers a choice of what they want to eat rather than just a one-size-fits-all meal that some people might not like but critics say it's just a thinly veiled cost-cutting exercise and a cash grab. Lufthansa says that the food options available for sale will be high quality at least, and based on customer feedback so far, it does at least appear that this is the case. Qantas is now in the final stages of a tender process to decide which aircraft type will or types will replace its aging Boeing 737 and 717 domestic fleets over the next decade. Qantas is considering the Boeing 737 MAX and Airbus A320 NEO as a replacement for its Boeing 737-800s. And to replace the 717s, it's considering the Embraer Ejet E-2 and the Airbus A220, both quite nice, comfortable planes, actually. Qantas expects to place firm orders by the middle of next year, with over 100 new narrow-body aircraft to be delivered between 2023 and 2034. Qantas and Emirates will seek regulatory approval to extend their alliance for another five years. It's currently due to expire in March 2023, but both airlines say the alliance is working well for both them and their passengers, and they would like to extend at least another five years and possibly even 10 years through to 2033. Over 13 million passengers have flown on the joint Qantas and Emirates network since 2013. Qantas does plan, of course, to offer more non stop flights to London in the future, which would fly pretty much over the top of Dubai, negating the need for that partnership, you would think. But Qantas is never going to be able to provide one stop connections on city pairs like Adelaide to Athens or Brisbane to Dublin, and this is where partnerships with other airlines like Emirates really come in. Virgin Australia's Velocity frequent flyer program has finally confirmed that it is ending its long-standing partnership with Alitalia, a day after the former Italian flag carrier operated its last flight. Alitalia has now been replaced by a new airline called ITA, or ITA, I'm not sure how you actually pronounce that. It's ITA, which stands for Italia Trasporto Aereo. ITA will be fully owned by the Italian government for the next few years, operate a smaller fleet, and aims to eventually be profitable by 2025. But unlike its predecessor, it will not be a partner airline of Virgin Australia. There's also no word yet on whether ITA will join the SkyTeam alliance, filling that void left by Alitalia's departure velocity members will still be able to claim missing points for alitalia flights they've already taken for the next six months and finally there are strong rumors circulating that american airlines will devalue its advantage frequent flyer program in the not too distant future there's still not much detail on what this exactly would involve but it could include changes like the removal of award charts or increasing the cost of award flights although this of course remains to be seen and it is just a rumor for now That's what's making news on australianfrequentflyer.com.au this fortnight. You can stay up to date between podcasts by subscribing to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest Frequent Flyer news straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday morning. Turn your bills into business class with the SNP app. Whether it's an ATO bill, rates, utilities, phone, school fees, body corporate or any of the other 60,000 plus bills with a BPAY biller code on it, you can pay it with SNP and earn full frequent flyer points for your credit card spend. You can use your Visa, MasterCard or American Express to pay bills with the SNP app and pay just a 1.5% processing fee including GST, there are no other hidden fees. The 1.5% processing fee even applies for American Express Payments. Now that's just 0.05% more than the ATO's card payment surcharge for Amex. And with SNP you'll earn points on your Amex card at the full everyday spend rate, and not the reduced rate that you'd normally get at the tax office. Snip also has some convenient features. You can connect your emails to the Snip app and have your billers automatically added to the app when they arrive in your inbox. You'll then get a handy push notification when your bill's ready for payment. You can pay the bill on the spot, schedule it for later, set up an instalment plan or create a recurring payment. And you can even use Apple Pay or Google Pay. So it's no surprise why SNIP has processed more than $150 million worth of bill payments and counting. It really is the easiest and most rewarding way to pay your bills. With tax time in front of us now, there's never been a better time to try SNIP. Simply download the free SNIP app on your mobile device and enter the code AFF10 on sign up for $10 off your first bill payment. That's SNIP with two I's. S-N-I-P. Well, yesterday, people in New South Wales got the announcement that they've been waiting a long time for. Here's what the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet had to say yesterday.
0: Uh, From 1 November, those people, returning Australians, tourists, who want to come back, who want to visit Australia, who want to come into Sydney, uh, hotel quarantine will be a thing of the past. Uh, We will require um, that, uh, which will work with the Commonwealth government, that those uh, those people coming into Australia, whether it's a tourist or a returning Australian, that you will need to do a PCR test before uh, you board the flight, um, and that you will need to show proof of your uh, of, of that you're double vaccinated. So for double vaccinated people, right around the world, uh, Sydney, New South Wales is open for business. We want people back. We're leading the nation out of this pandemic. A hotel quarantine. Home quarantine is a thing of the past. Uh, We are opening Sydney and New South Wales to the world, and that date will come in on 1 November, and we'll continue to work closely with the Commonwealth Government to make sure protections are in place so that we keep people safe, but we rejoin the world.
1: So from the 1st of November, vaccinated Australian citizens and permanent residents will no longer need an exemption to leave Australia. Vaccinated Australian citizens, permanent residents, their immediate family members and certain visa holders who are allowed to enter Australia will also no longer need to quarantine in New South Wales, neither in a hotel for 14 days and nor at home for seven days when arriving into Australia via New South Wales. They'll just need to get a negative COVID-19 test before they fly and possibly on arrival. From the 1st of November, parents of Australian citizens and permanent residents will also now be included in the definition of immediate family members and allowed to fly into Australia. In order to travel out and into Australia, you will need to be fully vaccinated using a vaccine that is approved or recognised by the TGA here in Australia. The approved vaccines for use in Australia are Pfizer, AstraZeneca, Moderna, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And the TGA is also now recognising the Sinovac and the Covishield vaccine. The Covishield is basically just the AstraZeneca vaccine used in India. People, though, who are not vaccinated with a TGA recognised vaccine, such as people who are in countries where only Sinopharm or other vaccines are available, would still need to quarantine for 14 days in a hotel on arrival, excluding children and those with a medical exemption. And there will now, from the 1st of November, be a reduced cap of 210 unvaccinated people per week into New South Wales. So that's what New South Wales is doing. We don't quite yet know what the other states are doing, but there's quite a lot to unpack here. So joining me now is someone who is uh, doing a lot better at keeping up with all of these new changes than I am. It's Alan Lamb from NetWave Travel, our regular podcast guest. Welcome, Alan. Hi, Matt. So, Alan, uh, yeah, a lot to unpack. It's a big announcement yesterday. Uh, first of all, what can you tell me about travelling overseas? So, if you're in New South Wales, you're now, from, from the 1st of November, you'll be allowed to leave the country. What about if you're in other other states? Can you transit via Sydney and then leave through Sydney? Uh,
2: I believe the I think there's still some clarity that needs to come from the federal government around this, but uh, it looks like uh, the announcement is going to be that um, – any australian that is fully vaccinated will be able to leave, and permanent residence, I should say uh, will be able to leave australia from any um of the states rather than just new south wales um owing to the fact that there's no uh, no state restrictions on supposed to leave a, a particular and state um yes so it means that um you, you can uh fly internationally out of perth or brisbane etc you you won't necessarily have to actually Fly via New South Wales uh, at all, although yeah, we may have more flights coming into Sydney uh, now that with the restrictions being lifted. So there may be more options via Sydney, uh, but understandably for someone who's coming, like uh, traveling from Perth, for example, that may not necessarily make sense to go via Sydney. Yeah. Oh, uh, unless you're going to the US, for
1: example. Yeah, absolutely. And so w- looking in the other direction, if you're overseas and you want to come back into Australia, um, from the 1st of November, you'll be allowed to fly into Sydney without having to quarantine. But where can you go once you have arrived in Sydney?
2: Uh, that's where it becomes a bit of a grey area. I think I think in the next week we probably will start to see a bit more clarity around uh, what the situation will be with uh, other states. Uh, I know, for example, Queensland. Um, you can't come in, so you can't fly into New South Wales uh, and then go straight to Queensland, or you can't really come into New South Wales and spend 14 days here and then go to Queensland. Basically, Queensland has a, a rule where you must have completed mandatory hotel quarantine for 14 days um, uh, before you can enter Queensland. Uh, And because that mandatory hotel quarantine will no longer really be an option in New South Wales, uh, unfortunately, going via New South Wales into Queensland is no longer going to be workable. Uh, So for people with existing bookings where, say, you're flying from London to Sydney and you're planning, originally planning to do 14 days of hotel quarantine in Sydney and then going Sydney, Brisbane, unfortunately, that's not going to work anymore.
1: Okay, so if you wanted to go from uh, somewhere overseas into Brisbane, for example, you'd still need to fly into Brisbane or one of the other states that's allowing uh, that, that Queensland is allowing quarantine-free travel from.
2: That's correct. Uh, so you would need to go into uh, Perth, uh, Darwin or uh, Adelaide or Brisbane directly and then um, complete your 14 days hotel quarantine there and uh, then travel onwards to Queensland. And the same would apply if you say travelling to Tasmania, SA, NT or WA. Um notably, uh, Victoria seems to have a bit of a grey area in their border restrictions at the moment. And this obviously doesn't constitute, constitute legal advice or anything like that. But um, there seems to be some anomalies in the Victorian uh, border rules at the moment that uh you may possibly be able to actually enter victoria uh having come into via new south wales but you know, that, that seems to be a bit of a changing target at this point Yeah,
1: i'm sure we'll get some more information about that over the coming weeks anyway and and i guess once you're in new south Wales, once you've arrived in sydney you would be able to travel um also in new south wales because from the 1st of november new south wales is also opening up for regional travel that's
2: correct so, so it looks like uh, it looks like you might be able to come in and uh Transit to a domestic flight, for example, if you're going out to Albury or Dubbo or Moree even. Um, but I think we might see some more clarity in the coming days or, uh, or week or so about this uh, in regards to potential testing requirements that New South Wales is going to require. Um, it seems to have been hinted that there will be some testing requirements, although whether it's uh, for before travel or after travel, um, that remains to be clarified, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and we hopefully will get some more information about that very soon. And so, if you want to travel out of Australia or back into Australia, of course, being allowed to travel is one thing, but actually finding a seat on an available flight is another thing. So, uh, obviously, like, travelling into Australia over the last, well, more than in the last year has been very, very difficult because of the arrival caps and the limited number of airlines actually operating into Australia. But are airlines now starting to open up more seats in and out of Sydney? And um, I guess what, what airlines are actually going to be available to travel on overseas now?
2: Uh, so for, for New South Wales uh, and into Sydney, the main uh, our main carriers be, uh, have been mainly Singapore Airlines, uh, Qatar Airways, Cathay Pacific, Japan Airlines, uh, All Nippon Airways, sorry, All Nippon Airways, otherwise known as ANA, um, Qatar Airways, Etihad and Emirates. Um due to a lot of uh, transit restrictions and various restrictions around swapping between airlines and so forth, um, yeah, the recommendation at the moment is to stick with one airline to uh, fly into Australia if possible. Um, with the exception of uh, if you need to, say, connect back, uh, locally, for example, like within Europe. So, you know, you, you could fly, say, Lufthansa uh, from Munich to Frankfurt and then Singapore Airlines from Frankfurt uh, to Singapore to Australia. That you know, that would be my recommendation at the moment to try and stick to the major carriers um. Uh, owing to all these changes going on at the moment. Coming from the US, um, you've mainly got United Airlines and Delta Airlines, although you can uh, potentially transit via another area area like Asia, for example. So you could potentially use uh, Cathay Pacific or Japan Airlines or Ornipon Airways as well to get to Sydney.
1: Mm. And um, airlines are now just starting to release more seats for sale I mean Qantas announced yesterday that it's going to start its Sydney to Los Angeles and Sydney to London And vice versa, flights from the 1st of November now And they've already put tickets on sale But other airlines have already scheduled flights into Australia over the coming months But they've just been restricted in the number of seats they're going to sell So I believe like Singapore Airlines is going to release more seats available into Australia from 3pm today And uh, what are other airlines doing? They're also now opening up inventory, are they?
2: Uh, yes, each airline is, I guess, running on their own timetable in terms of releasing those yeah. seats. Uh, Singapore Alliance has uh, done a limited release so far, uh, with more to come later today, as you've uh, already mentioned, Matt. Um, Qatar Airways released uh, some seats last night, uh, and I, I suppose that will also continue to increase throughout uh, the coming days and weeks,
1: and I guess if you are traveling overseas, especially if you're traveling somewhere that doesn't have a direct flight available from Australia, and you need to transit via another international hub, um, either going out of Australia or back into Australia, you will need to be aware of uh, some of the transit requirements that key, you know, transit hubs have. You know, I, I believe some of them require, like Singapore requires that you have a test in order to transit via Singapore COVID nineteen test before you fly. Uh, what are the main transit requirements that people should be aware of for those? Uh, major international hubs.
2: There are major hubs that we normally transit through uh, travelling from Australia uh, have varying requirements, uh, Singapore being the most onerous uh, in that you require a 48-hour, sorry, a PCR test at 48 hours before departure to transit through Singapore. Uh, there's also uh, the Singapore, uh, Singapore vaccinated travel lanes that you need to be aware of as well, uh, so depending on the eligibility requirements and whether you meet them or not. Uh, Bangkok, uh, you can transit through as long as the transit is within 24 hours, uh, and it must be on the same ticket. Uh, Hong Kong is also the same. Uh, You can transit through Hong Kong within 24 hours as long as it's on the same ticket. Uh, Doha is uh, a lot more generous with their restrictions. um, As long as the transit's within 24 hours, then you're fine. Uh, Abu Dhabi you need to transit within 12 hours Uh, otherwise uh, if you have an airside hotel booking or a lounge booking in uh, Abu Dhabi then you are allowed to transit up to 24 hours Uh, but Abu Dhabi also requires a PCR test as well 72 hours before departure. Uh, Dubai is less restrictive you can go up to 24 hours uh, and there's no PCR testing requirement for Dubai. Going through Tokyo Haneda you can transit up to 24 hours uh, if it's uh, Tokyo Haneda and uh if you're transiting through Tokyo in the reader then uh you can uh you must transit on the same calendar day because the airport closes overnight
1: oh okay what about um london heathrow and i believe also the us and canada don't actually allow international transit so you'd have to enter the country in order to connect to another flight and obviously then be subject to the entry requirements
2: yeah if you're tra- if you're traveling through london heathrow then london heathrow requires a covid uh covid-19 test uh this test uh, can be an antigen test or a pcr test depending on the requirements of any other ports that you're transiting through or what your final destination country may be. Uh, So you may find that you may still need a PCR test uh, or you might be able to get away with a rapid antigen test. Um, If you're going to the U.S., uh, the U.S. at the moment, under the current rules, uh, require you to do a COVID-19 test as well. And uh, it doesn't have to be a PCR test for going to the U.S. You You can use a rapid antigen test. Uh, or a PCR test to travel to the US. Um, both of these tests are obviously available in Australia. The rapid antigen testing, however, is a lot more limited in where you can get um, get this done. Sydney Airport does have a facili- sorry, facility operated by Histopath. Um, they do, do the rapid antigen testing. I believe it's $50, and that's about a one-hour turnaround, uh, which is a lot cheaper than a PCR test.
1: Obviously, there's a lot that you have to think about when you're booking your tickets. And, of course, the, what the rules are now could be different to when you actually travel but you would need to be aware of the transit requirements for where you're transiting through and also the any entry requirements for your destination and so I guess it's something to keep in mind like if you're transiting through Singapore they do require a PCR test but um, and so if you're traveling to a destination that doesn't require a test then that is an additional requirement that you would um, have to take on board if you are transiting through Singapore but if your destination requires a PCR test anyway then it's not actually any extra uh, work or expense that you have to do
2: uh, something else to be aware of as well if uh, if you happen to be transiting through a uh, another country in, uh, en route to your destination is that you actually need to look at all of the requirements um, for your travel en route so uh, and not necessarily in, in a lot of cases uh, the requirements to enter a country versus transit a country can be quite different and so uh, you need to be aware of what the rules are for transiting uh, if you 're transiting uh, and entering if you 're entering so uh, for example uh, your destination country might require that you have a COVID test uh, 40 hours before arrival, um, whereas Singapore, for example, if you transit through there, uh, requires a PCR test 40 hours before you depart Singapore, so you actually would need to look at the lowest common denominator of the two, um, and whichever is the more restrictive is the time that you actually need to follow. Um, previously, for example, the UK uh, required that you uh, did a COVID test uh, 70 sorry, not 72 three days before departure from when you, uh, on the last flight that departs to the UK, uh, other parts of Europe, for example, used to previously require that you had to do a COVID test 40 hours before arrival in that particular country. And uh, often that would make it quite onerous, and that you uh, basically only really had about uh, 24 hours before your flight leaving Australia in order to get that COVID test because of the fact that it takes 24 hours to, to travel from Australia to Europe. Uh, so this is, a, this is a key issue at the moment that you actually really need to actually pay uh, close attention to all these uh, little details and uh, keep on top of these changes, uh, particularly if you are making your own bookings. Uh, because these restrictions can change at any time with no warning. And um, just because you've been able to book something now and uh, the the requirements at the moment you are able to meet, in six months it could change. In three months it could change. We may see another COVID-19 variant and that that could change all the restrictions all over again. So this is something that
1: you need to be really mindful of if you're uh, booking travel in, in the coming months. God forbid that there's another variant. But I guess if you are booking your own travel, how can you actually find this information easily about transit and entry requirements?
2: Uh, the key, the key places to look at uh, government websites of the various uh, countries that you'll be transiting. Unfortunately, there is really no, uh, I guess, one-stop shop, if you like, to check all those uh, restrictions. Um, there is one that comes close to that, which is a system called Tematic. Uh It is available on the IATA website. It is also available on some of the airline websites as well. Um, and I'd encourage you to uh, encourage everyone to make use of these uh, resources into, in order to check these requirements. Uh, and at the same time, you also need to be mindful of uh, you know, any changes that happen between when you book and when you actually travel. So you would also need to keep on top of these requirements as time goes on. Yeah,
1: I've been using Expert Flyer. And Expert Flyer, you can bring up in the Visa, Health and Passport info information from Tomatic and also a website called Sherpa. Um, so if you google like sherpa, tra- sherpa travel requirements it's got a handy sort of color-coded map about where you're allowed to travel to and you can also put in your destination origin passport vaccination status and any transit countries and it gives you some information about that um, not quite as up-to-date as Tomatic, i would say but reasonably good and, and easy to use and then free so um, that would be my little tip there
2: uh, a thematic is uh, is probably the, uh, be- the better resource mm. to use in this case, uh, purely because this is the same resource that's used by the airlines as well. Mm. Uh, so, you'd be a lot more up-to-date and consistent with what the airlines are expecting you to be doing. Yes.
1: Uh, and you mentioned as well, just before that, Bangkok and Hong Kong and probably other countries as well require that if you're transiting through those countries, you need to be booked on the same ticket all the way through. Uh, I know that Well, previously to the pandemic anyway, people, some people used to save money on business class tickets by booking separate tickets from Australia to Asia, like to somewhere like Bangkok or Singapore or Kuala Lumpur or wherever it is, and then booking another business class ticket onwards from Asia to Europe. And that often saved you a few thousand dollars if you're booking in business class. Uh, I guess that's now um, a lot harder to do, um, particularly, it's impossible, I guess, through Bangkok or Hong Kong, but also, um, yeah, quite difficult to do through other ports now.
2: Yes, it's a lot more difficult to do that, particularly with these restrictions in Asia about um, uh, having to be, not, be on the same ticket. And you know, it's um, I, I can understand the reasoning behind that because of the uh, responsibilities and liabilities of uh, which airline would have to, I, I guess, take care of you in, from a duty of care perspective in case there's a delay or anything like that. Um, but yes, unfortunately, it means that, uh, you know, Uh, we aren't really able to take advantage of what we used to be able to do pre-COVID in booking the cheap economy ticket to Asia and then swapping to a a cheap business class ticket out of Asia.
1: You mentioned before also that some countries require a PCR test and others require a rapid antigen test. I believe in the UK that's known as a lateral flow test and I've seen it referred to as LAMP test as well. Uh, What's the difference between the two?
2: Uh, The PCR testing is uh, where a... Uh, a swab is taken for, uh, through your nose and through your um, mouth, um, and this is then put in a machine where they are essentially, I guess, amplifying, um, uh, amplifying the sample to see if they can uh, detect any COVID nineteen. Uh, the rapid antigen testing, however, is a little bit different, where uh, a, a similar swab is taken, but um, the sample is then. Uh, put into a uh, a testing device which uh, then has two strips it's very similar to a, a, preg- a home pregnancy test uh, where there's basically a line of antibodies in the material inside um, and then there's a line that shows up when uh when COVID-19 is detected uh so it's a lot much quicker because it's uh, again similar to a home pregnancy test where you can get a result much quicker than a PCR test
1: and cheaper as well right and
2: it's also a lot cheaper significantly cheaper uh PCR test can be a hundred dollars or more um Per person, as a rapid antigen test might only be fifty dollars. The only downside of rapid antigen testing in Australia is it's not actually readily available at the moment. Um, I know Sydney Airport, for example, has the as I mentioned earlier, there's a, a facility run by a histopath uh, at Sydney Airport, uh, so that, that's one place you can get a rapid antigen test. But I don't, I don't think I'm aware of any other uh, facilities in any other states that offer this just yet.
1: Hmm. And just while we're on the topic of transiting, uh, up until now, it's been uh, pretty much impossible. While well, while the Trans-Tasman bubble was running to transit through New Zealand and then onwards to Australia from other overseas destinations, is that changing from next month?
2: Uh, yes, you better transit through New Zealand as well. New Zealand's filing uh, accepting transit passengers through Auckland uh, if you are transiting to Sydney. Um, but... Uh, in all, in all honesty, the, in, in practice, it really there's not that many routes that you can take to actually transit um, via Auckland into Sydney, uh, mainly Singapore Airlines um, into Auckland and onto New Zealand, or um, possibly New Zealand uh, directly from say the US. And I think that's probably about it as far as the the main routes that would be allowed uh, on one ticket.
1: And you mentioned before the uh, vaccinated travel lanes into Singapore, or the VTLS, as as the ref- the acronym is. Um- They're obviously quite handy for people that are wanting to travel from those designated VTL countries, as I believe seven in Europe, the US, Canada and South Korea. Um, People from those countries can now travel on designated VTL flights into Singapore, which are for vaccinated people only um, and uh, not have to quarantine when they get to Singapore. But what are the implications for Australians using VTL flights um, who want to connect onwards from Singapore to Australia?
2: Uh, so from 19 October, uh, you will be able to use the VTL flights and transit through Singapore. Uh, prior to the 19th of October, it's uh, currently not permitted that you uh, can only terminate in Singapore. So, one, uh, so once this change takes effect, uh, you can use the VTL flights, but you need to meet the, v, the VTL flight eligibility requirements. Uh, namely that you need to do the PCR test for Singapore, which uh, is a standard requirement anyway. But you also need to be fully vaccinated uh, and you must have been vaccinated in one of the VTL countries uh, and be able to prove that accordingly with um, vaccination proof from that, from that particular VTL country. So what that means is that, uh, for example, if you left Australia during COVID-19, uh, went to the UK, for example, and then um, because you were vaccinated in Australia and you have a Medicare certificate, um, unfortunately, that wouldn't be accepted for a VTL flight because it means, it, uh, because it means you were vaccinated uh, in a non-VTL country. Uh, so it's something that to be aware of. Uh, another issue that um, that's recently cropped up with these VTL flights is that uh, 12 to 15 year olds in the UK are now being offered vaccinations, but they're only being offered one dose, so they're not actually considered to be fully vaccinated, and therefore wouldn't meet the requirements for a VTL flight. So it means that uh, you know, if you're tra- if uh, if your family travelling uh, through Singapore to Australia, uh, you can't use the VTL flights if you've got a 12 to 15 year old that meets that um, criteria. Uh, on the other hand, if you've, uh, if you've got youngsters that are uh, from between 0 and 11, um, uh, 0 to 11 year olds, because you, uh, there's no country offering vaccinations for this age group yet, uh, you will be able to use the VTO flights because they're exempted from the requirement.
1: Okay, and yeah, and speaking of vaccination requirements, like like I mentioned at the start, um, in a, in order to travel in and out of Australia, you would need to be fully vaccinated or otherwise exempt. Um, for example, children under twelve. But if you're in a country where only, for example, the Sinopharm vaccine is available, or you're not vaccinated yet, you there's only now two hundred and ten quarantine spots per week available coming into Sydney. So how would that work exactly?
2: Unfortunately, this is one of the details that we don't know, yet, uh, know about yet, and uh, the federal government hasn't been forth, uh, forthcoming about information on how this is going to work, and the, even the airlines don't know at this stage as to how that's going to work. There's really unfortunately no clarity about this whatsoever at, at this point in time, and uh, as I mentioned with the VTL flights, uh, the same issue with the 12 to 15-year-olds is also a, a problem here in Australia as well, because here in Australia, um, 12 to 15-year-olds are being given both doses, um, and so... I suppose that's where the federal government has ultimately based their requirements on. But uh, obviously, there's countries like the UK, for example, where they're only giving one dose. And in countries where they're only giving like one dose, then they're not considered fully vaccinated. Uh, So that, again, is another issue as as far as travelling to Australia, that uh, if you've got a 12 to 15 year old um, essentially being, I guess, discriminated against because of the fact that um, it's not possible to get a second dose in the UK, for example, at this stage.
1: Mm, Yeah, there's a a few problems there um, to work through. Overall, it's great news, of course, that the border is opening up. But yeah, just a few sort of loose ends that the government really should um, hopefully be providing some more information on very soon. Um, Just finally, Alan... The, probably the number one question I've had over the last couple of weeks since the announcement that the borders would be reopening is about travel insurance a lot of people are unwilling to travel overseas without insurance but which is absolutely fair enough I wouldn't want to travel overseas without insurance either but the trouble is very few insurers are actually offering tra- travel insurance to cover you outside of Australia at the moment um, and there's only a, you know, a few policies that will cover you against COVID-19 so I guess, what's the situation with travel insurance? Are we going to see more policies available that that will actually cover you for what you need to be covered for?
2: I think the insurance companies have probably been equally blindsided, uh, much like the airlines and everyone else with the announcement that happened yesterday. Uh, So I think what, you know, in this case, it it may be a wait and see, uh, wait and see game at this stage to see what uh, changes will happen with these uh, travel insurance policies. A lot of the travel insurance policies issued in Australia um, do seem to tie the requirements to what the government's uh, advisory levels are for each country. Uh, So, you know, when, uh, at one point when all countries were basically level four, do not travel, um, basically uh, most cover was null and void because of the fact that it was a requirement uh, as part of those policies that you couldn't be traveling to a do not travel country. Uh, so, you know, the, these uh, these smart traveler um, guidelines about, well, uh, I guess, uh, advisories on what these uh, countries, or what levels these countries will be uh, and what they will change to and so forth may, may well play a part in, uh, what happens to travel insurance policies uh, and in particular obviously with the pandemic at the moment a number of policies have exclusions about t- uh, pandemics so uh, this is probably the best time that everyone really needs to pay very close attention to the wording in a pds document for uh, what their travel insurance policy covers or doesn't cover
1: yes don't just click yes i've read the terms and conditions if you haven't read them actually please do read the pds um.
2: absolutely this is this is the one time you want to actually be reading those uh, re- reading these documents very very carefully.
1: Absolutely, and I guess we'll have to wait and see whether DFAT will uh, re- remove the level four do not travel requirement for you know every at the moment it's every other country other than New Zealand. Um, hopefully, that will be reduced um, in the coming weeks, and and uh, you know obviously opening up then more options with travel insurance. But that hasn't happened yet. So, if somebody, for example, is booking a, an overseas trip out of Australia today, should they purchase travel insurance now or wait a few weeks until there's a bit more clarity and, and more in uh, travel insurers are starting to provide usable policies?
2: Uh, so, what what matters as far as the travel insurance policy is concerned is the policy issue date. Um, so, if you buy a policy today, then the, the rules that are out there for the, today for that particular policy will apply, uh, even if those rules change uh, after you've... Uh, Bought the policy so uh, at this point in time you probably would want to consider waiting um, and seeing what happens to the travel insurance policy what happens to uh, the smart travel advisories from DFAT for example um, and all these other various uh, I guess variables in the in the big picture Uh, ultimately once we have some more clarity on these then it, it might be a lot easier for you to make a decision on whether travel is viable to you depending on what your circumstances are
1: yeah. Do you think it's worth booking with an airline that offers COVID-19 insurance at this point?
2: Um there's definitely some benefit to doing so. Uh yeah, at least it gives you an extra piece of mind cover I suppose. Uh and you know, it's it's obviously not uh, to replace an existing travel insurance uh, policy. So ultimately, uh, having having both may possibly be a good thing, uh, depending on your circumstances.
1: Well, really interesting stuff, and I mean, it's great to see that the borders will be re- reopening soon, and uh, yeah, good to get some insight about how it might all work. And hopefully, we'll have a bit more clarity over the coming weeks. But Alan Lamb from Netwave Travel, thanks so much for joining me again.
2: From no thanks again, Matt.
1: Over the course of the pandemic, a surprising number of airlines have been offering status matches to try to lure customers over from their competitors. Qantas, Virgin Australia, Qatar Airways, Air New Zealand, and now even Air Canada are just a few of the airlines that have offered free status to people who already have elite status with one of their competitors over the past year and a half or so. And as borders gradually reopen now, we're continuing to see even more lucrative new promotions as airlines try and steal you know, their, their competitors' most valuable customers if you already have status with an airline or hotel, this means that there are some great opportunities to climb the ladder with another airline or alliance um, pretty much for free with the status match op- um, opportunities, giving you the opportunity to try out other airline and hotel products and giving you more benefits when you fly or stay at hotels. Let me give you a few examples of airlines that are currently offering status matches. So if you currently have status with a One World Airline, a Sky Team Airline, or certain other airlines like Virgin Australia... And you'd like Star Alliance status, for example, you have a few options here. One is the United status match challenge. Until the 20th of December this year, you can get a status match with United, which is in Star Alliance, based on your existing tier with the other airline. And that status match will give you um, United and Star Alliance benefits for 120 days or basically four months which is actually a month longer than the usual 90 days they give you um so they've they've given you an extra month in 2021 for obvious reasons i guess now, if you then complete a minimum amount of flying on United Airlines within those 120 days, and it does have to be on United flights, not just any Star Alliance, but um, you then get to keep your United and your equivalent Star Alliance status until the end of January 2023 um, under the current 2021 offer. And it, it may well be the case that United offers a new offer um, next year, which will um, obviously get you through to 2024. But that's the current offer, which is available till the 20th of December. Now, with borders opening up very soon, this could be a good option if you're planning a trip to the United States in the next few months. And, of course, United is currently flying from Sydney to Los Angeles and San Francisco. If you're a US resident, by chance, and you currently have status with another US-based frequent flyer program other than United, Air Canada also now has a status match available of its own. With this match, you would get to keep Air Canada status until the end of 2021, and you can extend it for another year by completing at least one paid round-trip Air Canada flight by the 15th of January next year. Air Canada, of course, is also in Star Alliance, and um, Air Canada is currently planning to resume flights from Sydney to Vancouver in mid-December. Turkish Airlines is another Star Alliance member. They also have an ongoing status match challenge offer. Turkish Airlines will match... Uh, Sky Team Elite Plus, One World Emerald, which is equivalent to Qantas Platinum, Emirates Golden Platinum, Etihad Golden Platinum, El Al Platinum and Top Platinum, and also bizarrely Star Alliance Gold, which is bizarre because Turkish itself is in Star Alliance, so it's actually matching its partner airlines. Now The initial status match period is four months and that gives you the equivalent of um, Turkish Airlines and Star Alliance gold for four months. And if you then take an international Turkish Airlines flight within that four-month period, you then get your um, status extended to a whole year. And you can then um, extend your status for another year, so a second year, by earning 15,000 miles within that first year on Star Alliance and Turkish flights. If you'd like to give the SkyTeam Alliance a try for some reason, Delta has a status match as well. Uh, Delta status is interesting because it also gets you access, at least for now anyway, to Virgin Australia lounges when flying with Virgin on domestic flights within Australia, as well as uh, SkyTeam lounges, although well, they not on SkyTeam domestic flights for some reason um, – Although, you know, we'll see what happens with the Velocity partnership. Once Velocity does announce what on Earth it's doing with its international partner airlines going forward. But um, that option is available if you have uh, status with a non-Sky Team airline. You can uh, do a three-month challenge with Delta and complete some flying on Delta flights um, or some of its partners in order to extend that for a full year. For something a bit different, the Taiwanese startup airline Starlux is currently offering a status match as well, which is actually available for a few years. like You get to keep the status for a few years, not just 12 months. Um, and I believe Qantas Frequent Flyers are eligible for that. And if you're looking for one world status, you've got options as well. Qantas Frequent Flyer offers what it calls a tier accelerator challenge on a discretionary basis to people who have status with a competing airline and request a challenge. So if you've got Velocity Gold or Platinum status, for example, um, or status with an overseas airline, you might be able to um, start a tier accelerator challenge with Qantas. To request one of those, you could contact the Qantas Frequent Flyer Service Centre and ask. And with this challenge, you basically get uh, three months to earn 200 status credits on Qantas flights and if you complete that challenge you earn the 200 status credits within the three-month trial period that you get you then get gold status with Qantas until the end of your next membership year so the membership year the following year And if you don't have any airline status yet, that's okay. You can also get a fast track to American Airlines Advantage status using the Advantage Status Challenge. There is a fee for this challenge. It's a couple of hundred US dollars. But you don't have to have any status to start with to be able to start a status challenge with American Airlines. And you can also pay an additional fee to actually get the benefits of that status during the challenge period, which includes One World status benefits you can also get a status match or fast track with some hotels. Both Hilton and IHG hotels, for example, are currently offering status shortcuts, which can get you status locked in until 2023 by staying just a few nights at eligible Hilton or IHG hotels. So, as you can see, there are quite a few options if you're thinking about what um, you know what your travel pattern is going to be over the next year, and you would like to travel in style in 2022. If you would like to learn any more about these status matches or, and more, I'll be hosting a Frequent Flyer Solutions webinar on Wednesday the 27th of October, which will cover all of these status matches and more details, including how to get a status match that isn't publicly advertised, or how to get Singapore Airlines status by transferring points from your credit card, for example. For more information about this webinar, or if you would like to register, you can visit frequentflyer.com.au, or you could also click on the link in the episode notes, and I hope to see you there on Wednesday next week. to finish off this episode, I'm just going to take a couple of questions from the audience. Uh, and as I uh, remind our listeners every fortnight, if you would like to ask me a question to discuss on this podcast, uh, you are welcome to do so on the AFF on air discussion thread. And that's where both of these questions came from. So the first one is from a listener called Townsend. That's the AFF handle. And Townsend says, I thought your analysis of Qantas's proposed flight and the lack of available planes from the last episode was interesting. Is there a reason that Qantas cannot bring back the a- 380s earlier than planned. I realize it takes time to get them airworthy again, but I was wondering how long it would take as well as what other problems there might be. Uh, well, yes, as you say, it does take a little bit of time. It's, now these planes have been in deep storage in um, California for the last, well, over a year now, and getting them back into flying condition does take a bit of time. Um, that said, that's not the only problem. Um, the other problem would be crew, and Uh, Retraining the crew that have obviously their recency would have elapsed because the A380s just haven't been flying for the past uh, year and a half. And so you'd have to retrain enough crew and get them current um, to be able to operate those flights. And keep in mind for every airframe, you would need roughly five or six uh, sets of crew to operate each aircraft, So for two A, they're initially planning to bring back two A380s from July 2022. That's you know roughly 24 pilots and a whole bunch of um, cabin crew as well. Um, with possibly a few extra they would need in reserve. So it, that will take a little bit of time. Um, that said, I imagine Qantas probably could bring the A380s back a little bit earlier if they wanted to. I um, They wouldn't be able to do it next week, but you know, if they planned now to bring them back in, say, April or May next year, it, it might be possible that they could do that. Although um, Qantas was asked about this yesterday and said that they weren't um, at this stage planning to bring them back any earlier than July 2022, which is what they previously announced so, it doesn't look like that's the plan. Of course, also, bringing them back is um, expensive, and, you know, you once, once you bring them back, you have to pay the operating costs on those, so you want to be pretty confident that you would be able to fill them uh, with passengers. So, I suspect that uh, Qantas will be making up for the lack of planes by adjusting its schedules, rather than bringing back more aircraft sooner. Although it remains to be seen, Qantas does also have three Boeing 787s that they had ordered to be delivered during the pandemic. They've deferred the delivery of those, but they could also um, bring those back earlier instead of bringing back the A380s earlier. And um, because they already have 787s flying, they wouldn't have another aircraft type in their fleet that they'd have to, um, you know, obviously retrain the crew and, um and, and you know, get maintenance done on them and things. Um, so that would be a little bit more simple in terms of um, the operation. But, um, yeah, that's that's what the plan is for now with the A380s. Um, and the other question comes from Stu's iPad, and this person says, with the great news of Australia reopening international travel, will your consultancy service resume? I'm sure there are plenty of AFF members looking to burn some points. Keep up the great work, Stu. Uh, Yes, uh, I have some good news, and um, I've had a few questions about this recently. Um, We do normally, over at our sister website, Frequent Flyer Solutions, offer an award flight assist service, uh, which can help with redeeming points for award travel. That service had been suspended during the pandemic for, for obvious reasons, but I'm pleased to say it has now reopened. So if you have Frequent Flyer points and you would like assistance with using your points to book a trip, you can now go to the website, go to over to Frequent Flyer Solutions or just Google Award Flight Assist. And uh, yes, we are now back open for business. And um, this, this is a service that I manage, so I'm, I'm very happy about this, that we're um, at a stage now where we can um, help people with, with booking international travel now that there's a bit more certainty about that. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again to my guest, Alan Lam, and thank you very much for listening. For more information about anything discussed in today's episode, check out the episode notes. Here you'll also find a link to the AFF on Air discussion thread on the Australian Frequent Flyer Forum, where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. If you've enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF on Air on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform to receive every episode as soon as it's released. I'm Matt Graham and I'll be back next fortnight with more news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. And until then, safe travels.